Well, good morning, everyone, once again. It's great to be here with you. Um, If I didn't say it, my name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And uh, I know I mentioned it, but I'm still kind of in shock because I pretty much realized today Christmas is only a few days away. I don't know if you guys are in that same place. You guys are probably all prepared. Everything's ready. Uh, I don't know. Christmas for me is one of these crazy times where I feel like I'm juggling, and I'm not even a very good juggler. And I'm juggling kind of two ways of dealing with this time of year. One is kind of the way of the world. It's busy. It's full. There's traffic. There's lines at the post office. There's all these packages to buy and to wrap. There's spending. There's debt. There's you-know-what. And then on the other side, I'm trying to juggle this other side, which is kind of the way God would like us to be. It's the slowing down. It's these themes of hope, peace, and joy, and love. There's these candle liturgies. There's these Christmas stories. There's these moments of rest and song. And I'm always juggling these two, and I don't know if that's how it is for you, but it's just crazy. And the reality is, the way the world is the one that's consuming So as we've been doing for the last couple weeks, we've been trying to make space in our service, even our setup, just to kind of create a place that's comfortable, restful. So I'm going to do like I would at home, and I'm going to kick off my shoes, put my slippers on, if you will. And I got my coffee, which is always with me. And I'm just going to sit down and relax, and I invite you to do the same. Today we are looking at the fourth theme in our Advent series, and that's this theme of love. And as I was preparing for the last couple of weeks on this, um, I came to this quote that I heard uh, Pastor Kent Dobson pose. And I thought it was interesting, so I want to pose it to you. The question is, is Christmas supposed to be celebrated or experienced? Is Christmas supposed to be celebrated or experienced? And if you think about it, we all have ways of celebrating Christmas, just like we celebrate birthdays or accomplishments that we want to mark, we want to remember. We have all kinds of ways of doing this. But the question is, is Christmas just a day that we celebrate, or is it something we experience? Because celebration is good and all, but it's very different from being invited to experience something. And I thought of a good example to illustrate this, so... Stand up for a second and uh, get myself prepared. Um, and uh, so this is in my, this shirt is my shirt I wear when I'm not flexing my muscles. So it's a little looser. Uh, but you can see as I put this on, I just went from being Pastor Rich to a member of the Seahawks. I'm part of the 12, right? Um, I've entered into this. And as many of you are doing today or will do later, you participate, right? You start celebrating. You get into it. You're at home. You're sitting on your couch. You're drinking whatever. You're eating whatever. You're screaming loud. You're participating. And then you even start getting to the place where you're so into this that you're actually instructing the team that you're a part of. Pass it! Move away! Tackle that guy! Right? And you start telling them everything because you are just as knowledgeable at football as they are. And so you get into it, right? And if you think about it, though, what you're doing, you're not really experiencing the game. You're celebrating it. There's a very big difference between being on the field and the opposing team is kicking off the ball 
and you have to catch it before a, a giant group of two to three hundred pound men come to destroy you, right? And you are going to then, at that moment when you're on the field, you're going to take a knee and hope you live, right? Because that's a very different thing to be participating and experiencing this game than sitting on your couch at home with your beer and your chips cheering on the team. So this question, is Christmas supposed to be celebrated or experienced, is an interesting one. And I want us to take a moment to think about that as we move on. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Luke chapter 1, verse 38. It'll be up behind me. This is a text looking at the Christmas story. This is when Mary has just been told that she's going to have a baby. And this baby is going to be the coming Messiah, the promised one. This is crazy news. This is not someone who's married. This is a young gal. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't get just told she's going to have a baby. This is, this is the real deal. And at this time in the text, it's just starting to sink in. And this is Mary's response to being told this. Luke 1, 38. It says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So she, she essentially says, may it be so. May your will be done. This is her reaction. She's been given the news about the promised Messiah who's to come into the world to redeem the world is going to be born in and through her actual body. And her reaction, her simple response is, may it be so. She allows for it. She makes space for it. Think about that. She's a very interesting character in the story. If Jesus, if we take some symbols for a minute, if Jesus is the gift, right? That's what we always talk about celebrating Christmas, God's gift to humanity, Jesus. If that's Jesus, then what's Mary? Mary symbolizes something, and she symbolizes what I would call the gift received. She's the one that allows God to be born. She welcomes it. She says, may it be so. May your will be done in me and through me. Heart, mind, body, soul, spirit. She opens herself up to it. And that to me is a profound description of humility. Just to allow this story, as crazy and amazing as it is, to be the case. If you look at the text, she doesn't argue She doesn't debate. She doesn't start fighting with God about it. She doesn't run away from the situation. She doesn't get too into herself. Kind of like, I'm pretty awesome. Of course, God thinks this, so that's why this is happening. She doesn't do that. She simply allows this situation to be the case. Humbly, may it be so. And more than that, if God is love, which... The book First John clearly says, if God is love, then Mary is receiving God's love. She allows God's love to descend, allowing it to dwell in and through her, to carry the very love of God in her own body. That's amazing. And what does she do to deserve this, you might ask? And I'd say, I asked the same question, and it's really the wrong question. She didn't do anything to deserve this. God simply says, this is going to be the case, and Mary simply responds by, may it be so. A profound symbol of openness and readiness. 
The other thing we don't see is Mary kind of self-loathing about this situation, which would be understandable for a teenage girl. She doesn't say, woe is me, I'm not worthy. Nor does she get up on her high horse and kind of say something like, well, this, this makes sense. I was really good in synagogue, so uh, this is obviously how it should be. The Messiah should be born in me, not those other people. And if you look at what she says in verse 46 of chapter 1, we start to see even more of her thoughts around this. Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 46, says this, as she starts to sing. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's praising God. It goes on, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So she basically says, The God of the universe has remembered me. And continue saying, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So we see, Mary's not too humble, but she's not too proud. She just allows this to be. She says, yes, I am blessed. People, as a result of this work of God, are going to call me blessed. But he has remembered the humble state of his servant, and for that, she gives God praise. I find Mary so fascinating, and especially how open she is to this. And when I think about us, when I think about our culture, when I think of society, the problem I see is that we actually do not allow God to love us. We don't allow God space in our lives. We like boundaries, and we like barriers, and we like rules with regards to how much of God we have in our life. We don't like openness because openness at its core implies vulnerability. I simply am who I am. No more, no less, worthy, not worthy at the same time. There's not anything I can really do about it. I'm just here in this place of openness. I remember back when I was a youth pastor at the church I served at previously, and I was preparing to teach uh, what I was convinced was going to be the best sermon these kids had ever heard in their lives. I was very confident I was going to crush this sermon. It was on the topic of loving your neighbor as yourself. And the group at this time was in a difficult situation because they had just gone through some leadership transitions. The church had been through some difficult stuff. And so they were kind of in a place where they were fearing change, unwillingness kind of to welcome new people in. So I had studied, I had gotten information, I'd researched youth and culture, development. I was prepared for three weeks to just rock these kids. This was the first one, and I was convinced it was going to be this catalyst of change in the youth ministry. You can hear a little bit of how naive (laughs) I was. Um, I was both right and wrong in some ways. Um, So the series starts over and over again. I'm hitting this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the heart of the gospel. It's this pinnacle text. It's kind of this outward action-oriented form of the gospel. And we've all heard this before, right? And this is the actions of Christians in life with one another. And I'm teaching this, feeling really great about it. And this kid raises his hand in the back, who I just found out recently was struggling with pretty bad depression. And he raises his hand... And with all honestly, honesty, he says, but what if you don't love yourself? And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it's a really good question 
and I had not <laughs> thought about it. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself if you don't know how to, or you simply don't love yourself? We hear love your neighbor, right? We hear that over and over again. But what if you feel unloved? What if you hate yourself? What if you have a hard time living with yourself, or you don't like your choices, or you're ashamed of your past? What if you can't love yourself? And I'm talking about kind of the deepest form of this, like actual acceptance of who you are. And I think this is one of the biggest questions that I dealt with when I was in grad school doing my counseling program. And it was this idea that I was only going to be able to go as far with my clients as I was willing to go with myself. And as I started that program, I realized how really good I was at hiding and avoiding all of my own junk in my story. So just think about that for a moment. How good are you at being able to accept who you are? If you can't do this, how are you supposed to turn around and do this for someone else? Right? We say love your neighbor as yourself all day long. We might even kick it up and not just say love your enemies. But again, if you hate yourself, if you have a hard time with yourself, what are you going to project to others? And even if you're trying and attempting, it's not going to go very well. And then to take it a little further, what if you don't think God can love you? Have you ever felt that way? Like maybe he doesn't love you? I think this is an even bigger issue that comes up in our culture. We have a lot of self-loathing people, a lot of religious people who've been sent all kinds of messages about their unworthy state of being, which I want to just take a moment to address. There's a verse in Romans that says this, Romans 3.20. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you've heard this verse. It basically means we've all messed up and fall short of the glory of God. It's not a trick statement, right? There's no special trick. It just means what it means. We're all on one level. We've all messed up, and as a result, we all fall short of God's glory. And it's a statement of fact and reality. But it doesn't say that actually some people are a little more worthy than others, especially those that keep the right rules, that do the right things, that play the right games, that don't cheat on their taxes. They're all a little bit higher worthiness scale than others, right? The Bible doesn't say that. We say that. We bring that to the table. And it reminded me of something I was taught in my young days as a Christian, and sadly I own that I taught for some years as well. Um, Maybe you've heard this before, but How many of you were taught at some point in your life that you were so unworthy that God couldn't even look at you? That he couldn't look at us? That he'd have to turn his back on us because we were so unworthy? But thankfully, God has these special glasses, the Jesus glasses, if you will, And he puts the Jesus glasses on, and now because of Jesus, he has these rose-tinted glasses because, you know, the blood and all. And he has these Jesus glasses, and now as a result of these, he could tolerate us. He could look at us because he's got the Jesus glasses on. Now, when it was taught to me the first time, it wasn't quite as sarcastic as that. But uh, you can hear that, right? And I'm not going to unpack all of that because there were some good motivations behind it. But if you think about it, it's quite a damaging message. 
what do you mean God can't even look at us? That God thinks we're so unworthy that he turns his back on you. Have you ever had somebody get so frustrated with you that say, I can't even look at you right now? Is that what the love of God is like? You're right. (laughs) Amen, young man. It's quite a dangerous message, and in the long run, it's most often the more religious messages that cause us to feel unworthy and unlovable. And maybe that's you today. Maybe at your core you feel this, but you don't tell others you feel this way. You just bury it. Or maybe you feel this way and you have no problem telling people that. You have a hard time imagining the God of the universe, the God of creation, the good God, the God of love, could actually love you. So I think a good question for us to ponder is, what is your view of yourself? Sounds a little selfish, I know, uh, but it's important for you to think about. How do you view yourself? Do you see yourself as totally unworthy, that God can't even look at you unless, of course, he has his Jesus glasses on? Totally unworthy? And on one level, I want to make sure we're clear. We all are not worthy. But on the other hand, we are. We're created in the image of God. God loves us anyway. He went to great lengths to show us that in the midst of our unworthiness. So maybe you feel totally unworthy, or maybe you play the other extreme, and you think of yourself, and you're like, actually, I am pretty legit. I am kind of a big deal. And you think you're worthy, especially when you start thinking of certain people. That one coworker, totally more worthy than that person, or my neighbor, or that family member, or that street peddler. Compared to those people, I'm really good. Or my neighbor, who every afternoon is out in his backyard smoking, you know, Something that's illegal now, uh, or legal, or both. Who knows? That guy, in comparison, I'm more worthy. And we convince ourselves of those things. We play judgment games. And we can actually play these games so well that we can actually get to the point where we think God owes us something. Right? I did that, and I did this, and I did the other. I'm pretty legit. God owes me something. Can you imagine if Mary used that language? I was a good girl in synagogue. God looked down at my life and saw I got an A-plus for living my life, and so therefore the Messiah should be born through me, and of course that's what God did, right? That is not Mary. She says, I'm your humble servant. So on one level, no, she is not worthy. And yet on the other hand, she is. People are going to call her blessed because of this situation, this crazy experience. Why? Simply because she is the way that she is, not because she deserved it. I saw this line from St. Teresa that I want to share with you. It's a quote that I think is pretty interesting. It says this, If you are willing to bear serenely the trial of being displeasing to yourself, then you will be for Jesus a pleasant place of shelter. I'll say it again. If you are willing to bear serenely the trial of being displeasing to yourself, then you will be, for Jesus, a pleasant place of shelter. You simply are who you are, faults and all, 
good stuff in all. You're a mixture of both. You've made really bad choices. You've made really good choices. There have been times when you felt completely unworthy, and there's times when you felt worthy. You simply are who you are. Can you bear the trial of being displeasing to yourself? And if you can, and say, all right, I disappoint myself, suddenly a space opens up within you, and you become, for Jesus, a pleasant place of shelter. Which is precisely the Mary story. That is what Mary is. She's a pleasant place of shelter for Jesus in her very own body. No more, no less. In fact, if you were there at that time looking on the outside and looking at Mary, you would not have thought that she was a good girl in synagogue. She's a young teenager who is pregnant from who knows who. And you know all the religious people are looking at her and judging her and wondering what's really going on. Because from the outward appearances, Mary seems completely unworthy and completely off track. Can we bear the trial of being displeasing to ourselves so much so that it opens us us up to something of God in our lives? Because the moment this happens, you become, like Mary, a shelter for the Messiah. To me, I think that is profound. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 7. I want to show us one other thing. The only thing that we can see in this story that Mary did wasn't the deserving game. All she did was allow it to happen. She opened herself up to this gift, which we're in the season of gifts. I got to do a little quick survey about gifts. How many of you would honestly say, just raise your hand, that gifts can be hard to receive? Anybody find gifts to be hard to receive? Some of you, I might be the only one. Uh, To me, they can be hard to receive. Now, of course, it depends on who's giving you the gift. Uh, if your kid, like my kids, have no problem receiving a gift anytime, any place. You want a gift? Sure, I'm in. They're fine. As we get to be adults, though, people give us gifts. For instance, your neighbor or your coworker or your boss, maybe even your spouse, they give you a gift. And sometimes our initial response, whether it's outward or not, is, I wonder what strings are attached to me receiving this gift. Is there something to this? It'd be like me going to my son, Jack, who's six, and say, Jack, I bought you this new lightsaber, and it's all yours if you use the force to clean the house, right? Uh, At that point, when is this a gift, right? There's this if-then thing that comes into play. I did this for you, so you must do this for me. In other words, in return for the gift, we expect something, And that's not what a real gift is. But I'd argue that that's what's going on in the back of our mind and sometimes in the front of our mind when it comes to giving and receiving. And that's part of what's so powerful about this story and Mary as a symbol. And I know for Protestants, people can freak out when we start talking about Mary, worry that we're going to have a statue of Mary in here and we're going to start doing all kinds of crazy things because there's been history of abuse, of using this story in an incorrect way. But what I want us to see, just at the core, simply looking at Mary, she is the symbol of a gift received. 
No strings attached, no worthiness game, simply just allowing it to be the case for God to love her for who she is in that moment, moment in and through her, allowing this to happen. And it's not because Mary's divine. She's not. She's a human being. She's a teenager, right? So, if you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 7, we see this scripture that has a very interesting point. It says this, 2-7 of Luke. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Because there was no guest room available for them. To me, that's a very interesting line. We have this story, right? It's fairly simple. Mary and Joseph are about to have a baby, and there's no room. And I don't know how this was for you when I was a kid. I had this picture of what the innkeeper was like and how he sounded. And my picture, if you've ever saw my kids, you get a taste of my imagination. My kids are a little crazy. I had a little crazy imagination. And I pictured the innkeeper as this total jerk, and I could hear his voice. And he kind of sounded like the soup Nazi. No room for you. Get out of here, you kids. And we don't take your kind. And get out of here. It's late in the night. We don't have any room for you. That was just my imagination. And I always thought, this guy has got to be in trouble for God. Like, here, the baby's supposed to be born, and this guy says, no room for you. That's a little crazy. And when you read the text, there's nothing like that in the text. It's very simple, non-emotional statement. There's no room. I guess we'll just have to have the baby over here. But as a metaphor, if you think about it, it is very amazing There is no room for God to be born in the inn. And I'd like to suggest that that's a story for us because we do not make room for the fullness of the story. And as I said at the beginning, there's this constant juggle of the world's way and the God's way of celebrating Christmas and the busyness and the craziness and all the Santas and the lines and the eggnog nastiness and who wants that. We get so caught up in these crazy things that it's very hard for us to find space and room for God. And rarely, even that, do we make room to invite the love of God to come into its fullness and transform us from within like Mary did. So back to this question. Is Christmas meant to be celebrated or experienced? I think an even better question is, are we making room this Advent season to experience hope, peace, joy, and love? Or are we just celebrating it for a few moments? What we see in the Christmas story is this picture of the love of God his willingness to descend into our messy world, to love us for all of who we are, flawed and messed up people with gifts and beauty at the same time. He doesn't love us because we deserve it or that we did anything amazing. Yet, at the same time, we are his creation. And he loves us simply for who we are because God is love. The Advent story challenges us not to just celebrate, but to make room, to allow, to open ourselves up, to receive, to experience the love of God alive in and through us. And not only that, but this story is not just for a season. 
It's not just for a holiday or for a weekend. The story and its challenge is for our everyday lives. Are we making room for God in our day-to-day? Or are we so booked up that there's simply no room? As we end our time today, I want to invite us to do something different this morning. Um, Next week, we're going to be looking at how Christ makes all things new. Um, But for today and for this week, I want us to try a practice that I want to invite you to try throughout this week. And it's going to feel a little different. It might be brand new for you. And my hope is that this doesn't feel like adding something to your already busy schedule. In fact, I hope that it will do the opposite. And you could just call this a, a practice of allowing or a practice of space-making, or a practice of receiving. And I want to challenge us to just maybe five minutes a day try this. And I'm even going to ask you how it went next week. But here's what I want us to do. Right in your seat, kind of get yourself comfy if you're not already comfy. And I want you to take your hands out, open them up, and I want you to just kind of place them on your lap somehow that feels comfortable but face up. And I want you to do that with this idea of you're positioning yourself in a place of receiving, a literal physical expression of openness, right? As opposed to this. Does that make sense? I want you to open up, relax, if that means relaxing your legs, whatever. But physically expressing a a, a feeling of openness, And in a moment, what I'm going to do is in those positions that you're in, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and just um, have some silence. And in that silence, what I want you to do is take some deep breaths. And as you breathe in and out, I want you to be aware of the fact that you are literally receiving life right now. You're open. And I want you to be thinking about what it means to breathe in, to receive what God has for you. And just for us to take a moment in silence to pause and just recognize our need to open ourselves up to what God has for us. So we're going to do that. We're going to take a moment in silence, close your eyes, relax your hands. After a few moments of silence, I'm going to close this in prayer. The worship team is going to come up and, and end us in a song. But this is something I would like to encourage you to try this week even for five minutes a day, just to make space to physically, emotionally, spiritually just open yourself up, breathe in and out, and ask God to have room in you. So let's do that together.
God, with all the insanity of the Christmas season, we confess that our lives are full, that our lives are booked up, and we've gotten to a place in which we realize in many ways we simply have no room left. For some of this, for some of us, this has been on purpose. We fear that your gifts of hope, peace, joy, and love come with strings attached. And as a result, we'd rather celebrate for a day or for a week and then just move on. But God, we know that your intent into entering this world was for us to truly experience life in a different way, to experience all that you have for us, your hope and your joy and your peace and your unconditional love in our day-to-day in a way that transforms us. So God, as we sit with our hands open, as we're breathing in, as we are pausing and resting and allowing space for you, we ask that you would help us to be like Mary, to be people who make room for you, who allow you to enter in, who truly receive you and all the gifts you have for us, especially your love. And not only that, but help us then to share these gifts with others. We pray this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.